My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. This morning, I'll be preaching from the text from Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 5 through 10, as well as drawing from the Annunciation reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And my sermon this morning is titled, A Body You Have Prepared for Me. Today we commemorate the Feast of the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel visited the Blessed Virgin and delivered to her a message that is shocking in its implications and beyond glorious in the salvation that it would bring about for the entirety of the human race. And brothers and sisters, when we commemorate these times of year on the Christian calendar, the, the last week you know, we commemorated uh, the Feast of St. Joseph, uh, the guardian of Jesus and the betrothed husband to, to Mary. And this, this morning we commemorate the Annunciation. We are not just talking about abstract, right? We are looking at real people's lives whom God had chosen and who worked through to effect his salvation for us. And so when we commemorate these days, we do so not out of a sense of dry tradition, but as out of a sense of how can we pattern our lives according to theirs? What le- lessons can we learn from them? And how do their stories show us Christ? And the Annunciation shows us Christ in a, an incredible way. And the Annunciation and the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, these are foundational to the Christian faith. And there have been many ways in which it has bis- been misunderstood and misapplied. When I was prepping for this, I remembered a, a book I read many, many, many years ago by a, a then evangelical pastor. And I, I, I went to see if I still had it, and I did. And I pulled it off the shelf, and I found the quote that I had remembered from so long ago, which read like this. It, what if tomorrow someone digs up a definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing. The gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. Well, for one thing, Mithra was not popular during the time of Jesus or after the gospel. The popularity of Mithra does not come about until much later. But he goes on here. He goes on, I won't read like the entirety of what he said. His point was, are we really losing anything? And then, he, well, first he said, well, I, believe, I affirm the virgin birth. He's like, but if, if we lost it, would that change anything about what we believe about Jesus? Would that change anything about Jesus, the way of Jesus or living in the way of Jesus? And the answer to that question is, well, yes, actually we would lose quite a bit if we lost the virgin birth. Right? He was trying to say, like, there's things in Christianity you can take away. It's not going to cause the thing to fall down. But this is one of those things that we, we cannot take away. We'll go on to talk about why that is this morning. In his point, to make a desire to make a point about how God is bigger than our beliefs and our dogmas, he used an example that would indeed cause the face to fall apart if we lost it. And, and it's no secret that many modern-day theologians and pastors have waved it away as, a, as superstitious nonsense or um, a bit of mythologizing. And others, in a bid to score political points, also misunderstand the text by making the Annunciation 
And the virgin's fiat are saying, let it be to me according to thy word as an example of abortion rights and reproductive justice. But to do that is to read into the text something that is not there. But what's going on here in the text from Luke is illuminated by the text from Hebrews and it speaks to something powerful. And stay with me, we're going to talk a little bit now about sacrifice. The author of Hebrews, and I'm just going to say St. Paul, no one knows who wrote Hebrews, but um, some people think that St. Paul preached it and someone wrote it down. Uh, as people do when, sometimes. And some of your favorite Christian book, book authors, right? That's what they do. They preach a sermon. Someone writes it down and that's how they collect them together and write books that happens on occasion, right? But I think that the author of Hebrews, even though Paul may not have dictated it to a scribe, it has a lot of Pauline thought and it sounds like, most people agree, it sounds like, hey, this is something that was preached. So I'm just gonna say St. Paul when I refer to the author of Hebrews and saying, the author of Hebrews who we don't know, right? What we know about sacrifice is that God doesn't really desire or take pleasure in that. Yeah. So then the question for us, brothers and sisters, would be, well, God, as we saw, heard in the text, like, doesn't require or take pleasure in sacrifices. What does God require? What does God ask? And Psalm 51 is helpful here in verse 16 through 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So we see, brothers and sisters, the intention of the heart of the one bringing the sacrifice to God is what God is looking for and what God accepts. Interestingly, when you finish Psalm 51, we always stop at a particular part, but at the end of Psalm 51, it says, after it talks about a contrite heart and a broken spirit, Psalm 51 ends with, then you will be pleased with burnt offerings wholly consumed upon your altar. So there's this indication that what matters is the heart of the person offering it. And when the heart of the person offering it is broken and contrite before the Lord, then the burnt sacrifice will be accepted and can continue. And what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ is the culmination of the fulfillment of that idea. There's a theologian that I'm reading a lot of right now and I'm really, I, I, he's, he's really good. I'm reading a book called Corpus Christi. His name was Mascal and he brings up sacrifice and he talks about the, a threefold definition of sacrifice. He talks about the offering, he talks about the acceptance of the offering, and then he talks about the transformation of the offering. Offering, acceptance, transformation. So offering is what is given to God and in the Old Testament it's animal sacrifice. The second one is acceptance. God accepts or rejects what is given, right? Not because of the animal being offered, but because of the heart of the person offering it. And then transformation. God accepts what is given and then responds graciously by transforming what has been given and then giving it back to the offerer, right? We have to remember that in the Old Testament, they didn't just burn animals on the altar. What would they do? They would cook some of it because it was on the altar and then they would eat it. Now when we look at Christ from the reading according to Hebrews, the person speaking in the passage we heard read this morning is Jesus Christ himself. He says, I have come to do your will. He's speaking to the Father. And then it says as he's taking away the first to establish the second. So then we ask ourselves, how, how is this affected? And this is affected through the obedience of Jesus, through his own offering of himself. And to do this, 
a body is necessary. So he says, a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. And this is necessary because his self-offering, done once for all, is what sanctifies us. To sanctify means to make holy, to set apart for God's uses as God's holy people. We have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. St. Paul says, do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now the context of that, he's speaking specifically against sexual immorality, but the point remains that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's have a little bit of fun. Point to yourself and say, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, point to yourself and say, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right, St. Paul will say, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, the same Spirit will give life to your mortal body. Speaking of the resurrection. So we have been made holy by Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has come in us, resides in us, and has renewed us by the blood of Jesus. So Jesus says in Hebrews, a body you have prepared for me so he can offer it to God for all. Let's talk a little bit about Mary. So we talk about in Mary, God the Son, the eternal word, the Logos, as John would say in 1.1, in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. I think it's important to stop here for a minute, brothers and sisters, because this idea of the eternal Logos isn't something that's just uh, something that, that the New Testament authors were thinking and writing about. The Greeks and other people had this concept of the Logos, right, about this, this uh, um, the, the source, right, from, of all things, like source of wisdom and, and all that. And there's actually, a, there's a, a popular uh, public intellectual right now who actually talks a lot about the Logos, right? The Logos, the Logos this, the Logos that. And he was talking to one of his friends in, a, in an interview, and his, his friend is a, is a devout Christian. And his friend was like, yes, but the Logos isn't just an abstract concept. The Logos actually is personified in Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh and dwelt among us. So then how does the word of God, the son of God, the logos, how does he come to us? By taking on flesh. A body you have prepared for me. And so in the Annunciation, Mary sitting there minding her own business, and then Gabriel appears and says, blessed are you. Like favor, you are highly favored. You are full of grace. The Lord is with you. And then he tells her, this is God's plan. And we sometimes when we read these stories in the Bible, we think that we, we kind of approach them as sort of isolated texts. But think about Mary as a young, unwed virgin girl, right? She knows the stories of her people. What, what, what are some of the major stories of the Old Testament? Are women who are miraculously given children, right? Think of Sarah and Abraham, right? Sarah and, Sarah and Abram. God says, I will make you the father of many nations. And he's like, God, I'm really old. And God's like, that's cool. We can work with that. Abraham and Sarah, right? Samuel's parents, Hannah and Elkanah, I think. She's barren. She goes and she prays to the Lord. And the Lord grants her a son named Samuel who will go on to become 
one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, right? Throughout the scriptures, we see this. The barren woman giving birth, right? The woman who could not give birth, give birth. And Mary would have known these stories. She would have known these stories. And so when the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, hey, this is God's plan, she knows. She would have known, okay, something, something is going to result from this. And the angel tells her, he says, the child to be born will be called holy. He says, the child to be born will be called the son of God. He says that he will have the throne of the house of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's linking the birth of this child with all of the promises that God had made in the old covenant. And he, he, he discloses this child's identity to Mary. Holy God, the holy son of God. Emmanuel, right, that we heard from Isaiah. God with us is fulfilled in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. His, his mission is disclosed. This messianic king whose line will rule forever. And what does Mary say? I don't know. I got to think about this a little bit. <laughs> right? Why don't you go ask somebody else? My cousin Elizabeth. Maybe her. And God's like, funny thing you say that. <laughs> she's, she's pregnant too. Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's yes. Her fiat. Her divine yes. The angel departed from her then after she said yes. And that's the moment when the Holy Spirit overshadows her. And so I think we see this theme of sacrifice here as well, right? What is offered, what is accepted, and what is transformed, right? So in the sense of sacrifice, Mary is offering herself to God in order to accomplish God's will on earth. God says, this is what I would like you to do. And she says, yes, offering herself up to the Lord as his servant. God accepts that then. He accepts that yes. And the result is her pregnancy. She is transformed. She is transformed. Some of my Orthodox friends have a beautiful hymn that talk about during Christmas time and about the, how the uncontainable God, right? The God that is not able to be contained by anything, by space or time or distance, is contained in the womb of a virgin. Because that's who Jesus is. God from God, light from light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one in being with the Father through whom all things were made. The body that was prepared that we heard about in Hebrews, a body you have prepared for me, begins to be formed in her womb. Right? Christ is both divine and human. Both natures united together without mixture or confusion in her womb. And she is, as the angel said, highly favored or full of grace. So then we think about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We think about his sacrifice on the cross that we're leading up to. Holy Week is coming. Please be sure to be here for our Holy Week services. Stations of the Cross on Wednesday. First time here, I think, in a very, very, very long time. I think it's going to be very special. Maundy Thursday with communion and the service of foot washing. And then Good Friday. Then our Easter vigil on sunrise service at 6. And then our Easter morning service at 1015. Please be here for those things. But that's what we're leading up to, right? The passion of our Lord. And what is given? He offers something. He offers his body in fulfillment of all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Remember, he 
God takes away the first in order to establish the second. And then it is accepted. God accepts what is offered. God accepts what is offered. And this is seen by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then there's transformation. Christ is raised from death. As we will say on Easter a lot, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. His resurrection life, his transformed life is given to us. We are united with him through our own baptisms. And we are transformed as we are conformed into his image. What is offered, what is accepted, and what is transformed. And then let's think of ourselves, brothers and sisters, as the church. As we come here, what do we offer in worship to God? Our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Right? Our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Demonstrated ultimately through our offering to God of the bread and the wine. That we offer physical gifts to the Lord. Just as a body was being prepared for Christ. God works through the material to affect the supernatural. And then God accepts our gifts of bread and wine. Like I said, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word which means to give thanks. And it's an ancient Christian word for Holy Communion. It is our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. And then as we offer the bread and wine to the Lord, as we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, our Lord transforms it. The bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. We have no idea how that happens. We have no idea the mechanism or the means. We just know that it's true because the scriptures tell us so. This is not some tradition taken from the outside and jammed into the text. St. Paul's very clear. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. He doesn't say this symbolizes my body. He doesn't say it represents my body, even though in some way it does kind of. He says, this is my body. And then when Jesus said, this is my body, he didn't say, it depends on what your definition of the word is, is. He says, this is my body. And this was, of course, one of the great battles between the reformers Luther and Zwingli. This is my body. The bread and the wine transformed and given to us, which is why we approach the table. This is why before we get up for Holy Communion, I read the exhortation. The Lord's table can be approached only by those of a devout, repentant, and believing mind. Because St. Paul reminds us to eat the body and blood, to, drink, to eat the body and drink the blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner. This is the reason he says in 1 Corinthians why some of you are sick and why some have died. The holy things for God's holy people. The bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. We receive on him, we receive him, we feed on him by faith and grace and life and forgiveness and sanctification are given to us. This is why, brothers and sisters, the Annunciation and the virgin birth matter so much because in the Annunciation, God announces to Our Lady His plan and she says yes to that plan. And then she gives birth to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the body prepared for Him so He could be the final sacrifice once for all for the sins of the world. And so as we go forth through the rest of Lent into Holy Week and our Lord's Passion, let us 
keep these lessons in mind. That these are not theological abstracts with no practical application. The practical application for sermons like this is, this is what God has done for you. Let's give thanks. Let's appropriate for ourselves by faith and by obedience. Because when we gather here to do this, God is actively transforming us. He is actively changing us. Like she said yes to God as we say yes to God as we hear the word spoken to us and feast on the Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen.